We turn for our scripture this evening to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. To verse 23. So let's begin then Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. So the creation days continue, the second, third, and the fourth. And if you'll skip down with me to verse 23... There was evening and there was morning a fifth day. And then in verse 24, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, And to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So far then, our reading of Scripture. Dear congregation, we've considered in our study of the Catechism, the path of life. And we've taken uh, some steps on that path and they've not been happy steps. It is not good news that meets us at the beginning of our journey. It's painful news. It's the kind of news you receive when you go to the doctor and receive a negative report. And this report, congregation, has been terminal. There's a monster. You remember that, children? The monster that dwells within every human heart. And the law of God, when it comes to us, stirs up that monster, gives it new life, and it, and it springs up, and it kills us. It's killing us. And naturally the question then comes in our catechism as we come to the next stop on the path of life. 
Where did this come from? Why this monster of sin within us? A congregation, I would appeal to your own experience this evening. When was the last time that you asked this question? Where did this come from? Even after having received the grace of God in our lives, where does this sin that continues to plague me come from? It's the question that every Christian has asked and continues to ask. And it's also in our catechism. Where did this monster come from? And our catechism gives us this answer. Let's read this together then in question and answer six of our catechism. The question, did God create man so wicked and perverse? And the answer given us is no, God created man good and in his own image. That is in true righteousness and holiness. In order that he might truly know God, his creator, love him with all his heart, and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. So on the path of life, the catechism responds to that question, that agonizing question that comes from the heart of every person who's been touched by the Spirit of God. No. This monster, this sin, this wicked, perverse nature that lives within every human heart did not come from God. God created man good and in his own image. And that's really what I want to focus on with you this evening. That what does it mean to say that we were created in God's image? That will be the subject of tonight's sermon. What does it mean when Scripture teaches us that we are created in God's image? In congregation, this is something of a difficult subject, actually. Because, interestingly enough, the Bible has very little to say about it. The, the image of God is not a, a subject that comes up often in the Scriptures. And in fact, there is no place in Scripture where the Scripture just clearly and explicitly explains to us what it means to be in the image of God. You, you can't find a Scripture like that. Uh, now, there are different Scriptures that we can piece together to try to come up with an idea of what this means. And that's what we're going to do this evening. Now, I'm interested in doing this with you this evening, congregation, especially because we often talk about theology. Theology, the study of God, the study of His Word. And I think you're going to get a taste for that this evening. What it means to be a theologian. And of course, every Christian is a theologian. But you're going to see what a theologian does tonight. As we, as we try to piece together the different scriptures, it would be much easier, of course, if we just had a, a passage that said, this is what it means to be in the image of God. Now, God in His perfect providence has not chosen to give us that. So then we as Christians are called to gird up the loins of our mind and to set to work to try to find the various scriptures that will teach us about this concept. Now, you know that when we do this, when we do theology like this, we want to use the whole Bible. Right? Whatever our concept of the image of God is going to be, at the end of the day, it has to answer all the scriptures, all that the scripture teaches on the subject. We can't say the image of God means this and this and this. Now, this scripture over here contradicts it, but we're just going to lay that aside. We, we, we can't do that, right? We kind of heard something of that this morning, that we listen to all of the Word of God because only the Bible is that true prophetic voice that comes to us 
and that speaks to us true. So the image of God. This is how God created man. Now, uh, naturally, by, by reason of the subject here, I'm going to go a bit beyond just what was in the catechism answer question and answer given us here and talk about more than just what's there. But certainly I'll cover at least that. So at any rate, the image of God. What do we mean when we talk about the image of God? And naturally we turn to the scripture that we read together. And you'll see that the fifth day has come to a close in verse 23. In Genesis 1 and verse 23. And in verse 24, the sixth day, the work of the sixth day begins. So in your Bible, Genesis 1 and verse 24, we see the work of the sixth day beginning and it involves the creation of animals, living creatures, cattle, creeping things, beasts of the earth. All these different animals that are going to live on the land. Previously, he had created animals for the water and for the air, but now for the land. But this is important because on the sixth day, we see that God creates these animals after their kind, repeatedly, after their kind, after their kind, after their kind. But then in verse 26, then God said, let us. You see, now there's a bit of a transition here in the text, isn't there? Things change. God created the animals and that was good. Right? That's repeatedly said, and it was good. God creates the animals. But there's something lacking there, isn't there? You kind of sense that in the text. The animals isn't all that God wanted to create. There needed something more. And so you see this holy convocation between the members of the Trinity, perhaps the angels, the whole heavenly court. Then God said, let us make man in our image. In other words, here's the animals, the cattle, the creeping things that are created, and they're created very good. But still there's something lacking there from the perspective of God. And God says, let us make another creature, but this creature, this creation is going to be in our image. He's going to be like us. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So you sense already in Genesis 1 and verse 24 that even though all the animals have been created, that God yet seeks for a different kind of creature. A creature that is like him. And there is this this meeting, let us, a plurality, let us make man. Now, when we come to this question of, well, what does it mean then to be made in the image of God? Immediately we're led to think, well, what sets us apart from the animals? And and that's an appropriate way of thinking about this. And and again, it would be, again, we we naturally think that, well, I I wish there was a a Bible passage that just told us what it means to be in the image of God. Well, again, in the absence of such a verse, we we have to try to piece the different scriptures together to solve the puzzle, as it were. And so, in the first place, we see this contrast between the animals and between man. Man is in the image of God, The animals are not. Now the first thing that people have said is that it has something to do with the body. That people stand on two feet or there's some part of the human body that reflects the image of God. Now I think we can can reject that idea. 
uh, because animals have a body. That certainly wouldn't distinguish us from the animals at all. Animals have a body. There must be something else. Some people have said, some theologians have said that being in the image of God means ruling over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth as we have it in verse 26. That that's what it means. In other words, they see the image of God not as something part of man, part of his makeup, but as something he does, a function that God gives him in this world. And that function is one of dominion over all the animals and over all the creation. Now that too, I think we can, we can dismiss. Uh, first of all, based just on the scripture here, in verse 26, when we have, and, and follow me here now very closely, in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And our, our translation says, and let them rule. Now, in the, in the New International Version of the Bible, you would read something like this, according to our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky. And that actually is a, a correct translation. Uh, there, there's certainly, in the Hebrew grammar, grounds to believe that that is how we're to understand this. That God made man in his image so that, or for the purpose of, him being able to rule over creation. So we don't deny, of course we don't deny, it says very clearly that man rules over creation. But we would deny, at least uh, as I'm understanding it, we would deny that that's the image of God. In fact, we would say that man is made in the image of God so that he can do that work. That's why he's made in the image of God. So the image of God is not him ruling. Rather, the ruling is a result of the fact that he's already made in the image of God. And so theologians throughout all the ages have gone not to the body of man, but to the soul of man and said that what makes a man uniquely in the image of God is that he has this soul, this rational soul. He has the ability to think and to reason. He has the ability to make choices. He has the ability to communicate, to speak, and to be in relationship with others. Now you might say, well, don't animals make choices and don't they reason? Well, no, they don't. Animals are driven by instinct, aren't they? They, they, don't, they don't deliberate between choices. It might look like way when a lion is, is you know, stalking its prey, but right, those animals are purely driven by a God-given instinct, which drives them to do this, not that. right? But with humans, it's different. We, we, we think in terms of logic and reason, and we make choices, this and not that. And... And we are able to communicate. And, and not only that, uh, dear friends, but humans also have the ability to turn around and to look within themselves. To be self-aware. Right? No animal, no, no, and I'm not trying to be silly here, but no lion reviews how he chased that antelope and how he could have done it better. Right? They, they don't look within themselves. They don't have that ability to look back on themselves. But we as humans have that faculty. Right? We have that God-given ability to think about ourselves. So, our soul, our intellect, this is what we understand the image of God to be. And it's being made in that image of God, then, that enables us to rule over creation and to be God's, uh, well, the, the term often uses is vice-regent. In other, in other words, we are God's uh, delegate to rule over creation. And he's given us the ability 
and the authority to do that. Now, if you have your Bible, turn to Genesis uh, chapter 9. And in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, we have this, uh, this very familiar verse. Genesis 9 and verse 6, which also mentions to us something of the image of God. And so here God is speaking to Noah. And he says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. So here we have the institution of capital punishment. But for our purposes this evening, congregation, I just point out to you that the practice of capital punishment is based on the fact that man is uniquely in the image of God. And especially important for our purposes this evening is that even after the fall into sin, man continues in some respect to be in the image of God. That's what we learn from this Genesis 9 and verse 6. That God bases the the, the rule, the, the principle of capital punishment on the fact that men and women are made in the image of God and they continue to be in the image of God even after the fall into sin. Now that's important. That's going to be important, again, as we try to piece together the different scriptures that teach us what the image of God is. We need to know what happened to the image of God in the fall. So that is the image of God. That would be my first point then. Uh, The image of God created. But now we come to the image of God defaced. Defaced and restored. Because we have verses in the New Testament that also speak to us about the image of God. Now the first verses that I'm going to just read for you are those verses that speak about our salvation as being a new creation. Let me read them for you. In 2 Corinthians 5, we read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. And then in Galatians 6, we read very similar words, For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Now what does that do? That drives us to think about our salvation in terms of what happened originally in creation. A new creation leads us to ask, what was the old creation? And then even more explicitly are these verses I would like you to turn to in Ephesians 4. And again, what we're doing here is is just combing through the scriptures, right, to find the verses that are going to teach us what the image of God is. And when we come to Ephesians 4 and verse 24, Ephesians 4 and verse 24, Paul says, And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now before Paul had been talking about the old self, he'd been talking about your life as Gentiles, When you lived with darkened understanding, you were excluded from the life of God. He talks about that in the previous verses. But in verse 24, he talks about the new self, right? So this would be uh, the person as being remade by the Spirit of God, being sanctified, this ongoing work of sanctification in the life of every Christian. But notice what it says, which in the likeness of God. In other words, When God begins his saving operations upon the human person, they are brought more and more into the likeness of God. 
Which again leads us to think back about how we were created in the image of God. And now we have restored to us this likeness of God. And in Colossians 3 verse 10, the, the verse is almost exactly the same, but with, a, with, a word, with one word in there, renewed. So Colossians 3 and verse 10, and have put on the new self who is being renewed. Now do you hear that word renewed? Who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one, capital O, who created him. So Paul, again, talking about the saving operations of the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God enters the heart and the mind of a depraved sinner and he begins to recreate that man, that woman, into the image of God, he's renewing within them the image of God. Now, this is so important for us because we think to ourselves, now wait a minute. In Genesis 9, we had come to the conclusion that man still is in the image of God. Because the whole law of capital punishment was based on the fact that man is created in the image of God. Now why is Paul talking about the image of God being restored to us and being renewed to us? We are a new creation. Why do we need to be restored in the image of God if we are already in the image of God? Well, see, congregation, again, this leads, leads theologians to ponder that in some sense... Man has retained the image of God, but in another sense, he has lost the image of God. And actually, Paul himself gives us the clue here. Because in the Ephesians 4, verse 24, he had said, The likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And so now, again, theologians throughout history, you can find this in so many different theologians, you can read it. Basically, you can pick anyone you like. They all say more or less the same thing. That man was created in the image of God, meaning that he had this rational nature. He had intellect, the reasoning ability. He had a will by which he was able to make choices. But then they go further, and they say that man, as created by God, used those faculties, his intellect, his reason, his will, to glorify God. And by his will, he made Choices that would be called righteous and holy and good. When man fell into sin, he lost this, and now I'm going to use a term, the moral image of God. He lost that moral side of it by which the intellect, the reasoning, the will that he had, that he'd been gifted by God, he still retains that. But no longer does he use it to glorify God. And after the fall into sin, man became a sinner. And that's what we talked about, that monster that dwells within. That sin, that depravity that lies at the very heart of the human nature. In that sense, he has completely lost that moral side of the image of God. He uses, may I use the word tools? He uses the tools that God has given him in creation, his intellect, his reason, his will, his memory, his language ability. He uses those tools to mock God. In congregation, dare we even say it, as the Catechism said it last week, to hate God and his neighbor. It's not that man lost the tools, but he lost the use of those tools. The use of those tools to honor and glorify God with. 
And that's what I'm saying, congregation. This is the language some theologians have used. I think it's helpful that the natural image of God has been retained by man even after the fall. In fact, if that wasn't the case, man would not even be able to sin. We don't think of this pulpit as in any way committing a sin. It can't. It doesn't have the, the, the tools, the, the mental equipment to, to commit a sin. Right? So in that sense, man has retained that natural image of God even after the fall. But the moral image of God, in other words, the use of those tools to glorify God in his life, has been completely lost. In fact, it's been replaced. Alas, congregation, that's what we've been talking about. It's been replaced with that monster. It's been replaced with the image of the devil. That's, congregation, how we should think about the image of God this evening. And my third point there on the outline is, why? Why did God make man in his image? Because you'll notice that our catechism has that purpose in there, right? It says, in order that he might truly know God, his creator, love him with all his heart, and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. And congregation, in a word, I've put it there in that uh, their communion. God does not have communion with animals. But he does commune with his human creation. In 1 John, we read this. In 1 John, uh, this is a uh, This is such a beautiful passage of Scripture. John writes so simply and yet so deeply. In 1 John 1, verse 1, what was from the beginning, or really who was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us or communion with us. And indeed, our fellowship, listen, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Communion, congregation. Communion between God and humans. And why is that possible? That's possible because God made humans in a very real sense, like himself. And therefore, humans can have communion and fellowship with God Almighty. Now, we well know, and we've learned that, haven't we, over these weeks as we walk this path of life through the Catechism, this truth, where John continues, and he says, but if we walk in the light, I'm sorry, verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That is, with one another as humans and with God. There you see, congregation, the beauty of this doctrine of the image of God. And I said it has beauty, but it also has a deeply ugly side to it, doesn't it? That man would take the tools, the equipment, if I can say, that God created him with, and he turns it to a completely different use. Not to commune and to fellowship with God, but to hate him, to destroy him. And you remember that quote from Jonathan Edwards, 
that man would tear God off his throne and kill him if he could. Well, let me, let me take then and consider with you the confessions, the other confessions, because you'll find that this doctrine of the image of God is in all the confessions, all three of our confessions, confessional statements. If you take your blue hymnal, you can follow with me here. If you go to confession, our confession of faith, on page 75 in the blue hymnal, you'll see this article where it says, uh, article 12, I'm sorry, article 14, on the very bottom of page 75 in the blue hymnal, where we are taught in article 14, the creation and fall of man. You see that there? On page 75. And the confession says, we believe that God created man out of the dust of the earth and made and formed him after his own image and likeness, good, righteous, and holy, capable in all things to will agreeably. And I want to highlight that word agreeably, right? Because that's that moral side of the image of God. To will agreeably to the will of God. But being in honor, he understood it not. Neither knew his excellency, but willfully subjected himself to sin, and consequently to death and the curse, giving ear to the words of the devil. And, and uh, well, let's just continue. For the commandment of life which he had received, he transgressed, and by sin separated himself from God, who was his true life, having corrupted his whole nature, whereby he made himself liable to corporal and spiritual death, and being thus become wicked, perverse, and corrupt in all his ways, he has lost all his excellent gifts which he had received from God. But then notice the the confession says, and retain only small remains thereof. Again, that would be that natural image, the, the equipment, the mental equipment that God had given him, which, however, are sufficient to leave man without excuse. And it continues. Let's look also at the Canons of Door in Article 102. I'm sorry, page 102. And Article 1. So this is the uh, third and fourth head of doctrines, page 102 in the Blue Hymnal, where we see the Canons of Dort and uh, our fathers at the Synod of Dort teaching us about the image of God as well. In Article 1, man was originally formed after the image of God. His understanding was adorned with a true and saving knowledge of his Creator and of spiritual things. His heart and will were upright. All his affections pure, and the whole man was holy. But, revolting from God by the instigation of the devil and by his own free will, he forfeited these excellent gifts, and in the place thereof became involved in blindness of mind, horrible darkness, vanity, and perverseness of judgment. Became wicked, rebellious, obdurate in heart and will, or stubborn in heart and will, and impure in affections. And then if you drop down to Article 4. Article 4. There remain, however, in man, since the fall, the glimmerings of natural light. And that's that, that natural image. Again, man hasn't lost the, the tools that God created him with. The glimmerings of natural light, whereby he retains some knowledge of God, of natural things, and of the difference between good and evil, and shows some regard for virtue, and for good outward behavior. But so far is the light of nature 
from being sufficient to bring him to a saving knowledge of God and to true conversion, that he's incapable of using it aright, even in things natural and civil. It goes on, Nay, further this light, such as it is, man in various ways renders wholly polluted and hinders in unrighteousness, by doing which he becomes inexcusable before God. So there's the confessions, congregation, that teach us this doctrine of the image of God. But congregation, I hasten on to my second point of application because in a recent sermon, we talked about God's unveiling of the promise that in the scriptures, God unveils to us this promise of salvation, this promise of restoration. And I think we see that in the sermon this evening so powerfully because as we started off along this path of life, we were we were plunged into this terrible misery, which we, which we learned is as a result of our own sin and guilt. We plunged ourselves recklessly into this sin. And this monster of sin that dwells within us is, is something of our doing. God didn't put it there. But congregation, the unveiling of the promise of God in the scriptures is that God desires fellowship with his creatures. And he works Because it all comes from God, congregation. It all starts with God. He comes and He works to restore in His fallen creation the image of God. He works to bring it back. He works to cleanse the corruption and the perversion of the good gifts that He's given us. And He works to turn those around. And isn't that really, in some sense, the message of all of Scripture? That God will take his ruined creation and he works to put it back to rights again. And the image which was defaced, he restores in the hearts and minds of his people. God made us upright. He made us good. And we plunged ourselves into sin. But the very fact, congregation, that we don't end the story there shows the mercy and the love of God. Because he could have turned every one of us into hell eternally. And that's really, congregation, where we need to come in our own life of faith. To see in our own hearts the image of God naturally there. the, The mental equipment that God has created us with. And then to see how we've taken those tools. Which place us far above all the animal kingdom. And we've turned those guns on God himself, as it were. And we hate God. Congregation, doesn't that render our depravity all the worse and all the uglier and all the more heinous to see how much good God has done for us and how we've turned it right around? This fills us with shame, and rightfully so. But congregation, the unveiling of God's promise is that he'll restore in us that image again. So that, as our catechism has taught us, we can rightly know God our Creator. We can love Him with all our heart. We can live with God in eternal happiness for His praise and glory. I love that verse, congregation, that I put at the top of the outline there. And I really feel that's, the, that's part of that promise that God's given us. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for Himself. You know, God has all these animals, all these creatures that he's created. But he says, no, I take this people. 
this people that have my image and upon whom I've restored that image, I set them apart for me. That's a people for myself. That's a people that I'm going to have fellowship with. There is going to be this mystical communion between me and them. God has set apart those for himself. Isn't that a beautiful verse, congregation, that God teaches us? And that's really that promise that God unveils. He sets apart the godly for himself. And so, congregation, I come to my last point of application here. In whose image? Congregation, I know that when we come to church this evening, that we see all the wrong image in our hearts, don't we? Maybe you can even, maybe you would even say that to me, Pastor, if you knew what was in my heart. If you knew the sin that lives in my heart. Congregation, I could say the same thing about myself this evening. If you knew the sin that lived in my heart, you never would have called me to be your pastor. That's for sure. In our minds lives that sin. In our minds and in our own hearts, we see not God's image, but the devil's image. Even after we've received grace, we see so much of that sin within us yet that keeps rising up, that we have to struggle and fight against all our life long. And especially when I think about the Lord's Supper in the coming week, when God spreads a table and he invites us to come and we can look at our own image, we can look at the image that shows itself in our own lives and we can be, and we shrink back. That can't be for me. What possible reason could I have to come to that table when I have so much of that monster, I have so much of the image of Satan within me and not the image of God? You know, when I thought about that congregation, I thought about that leper that came to Jesus. And he put that question to Jesus. He says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Have you ever prayed that prayer, congregation? Have you ever got on your knees when you had a fresh sight of your own sin and guilt, your own unworthiness to ever be called a child of God? And said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And you know what the answer is this evening? I am willing. Jesus says, I am willing. And he stretches out his hands to that leper. Oh, Jesus, you can't do that. You're going to be unclean. Enough of that, he says. He stretches out his hand and he takes hold of that leper. That's what he'll do for you this evening, congregation. When we see to our own shame the image of Satan within us, even again being Christians, maybe for many years, and we wonder at how much sin still remains within us. Hear the voice of Jesus. I will be cleansed. Congregation, that's the only way we can approach the table of the Lord. We don't approach the table of the Lord testifying that we're righteous in ourselves. We read that in the forum this morning. But we approach the table saying, Lord, I'm a leper. I'm a sinful man. Peter said, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. But Jesus doesn't say, go away from me. He says, I'm willing. I desire fellowship with you. That's why I created you originally in my image. So that you could have fellowship with me and with my son, Jesus Christ. 
And that's why congregation in the coming week, this table will be spread. With the symbols of God's love, with the call of God, come, I will be cleansed. Congregation, do you see the image of Satan in your heart tonight? Because now for such a one, for such a sinner, God says, come. Here's broken bread. Here's poured out wine. Here's blood. Here's atonement. Here's a cleansing for the worst leper amongst us. That's for me as the pastor, for you as the congregation. We all sit around that table and we say, Lord, if you're willing, if you are willing. And Jesus confesses tonight that he is willing, that he will have fellowship with us, even though we're lepers, that he will reach out his hand, no matter how unclean you may be, no matter what sin you may have committed in your life. He says, I'm willing to cleanse you. I'm willing to cleanse you. And he gives us the seals and the proofs of it at that table. What a glorious privilege that is, congregation. The scripture, Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That means, congregation, that Jesus, too, is in God's image. And he's perfectly in God's image. And Paul says that we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, the same image as Jesus, from glory to glory. That's what the work of God is in our life, congregation. That he takes the image of Christ and he transforms us into that glorious image. Now praise God for that glorious work. That's why we worship congregation Sunday after Sunday. That's why we fall at feet of Jesus and we say, Lord, I'm not worthy of this. But praise be to God forever and ever for the work of grace that he performs in our life. May God give us to taste something of a congregation this week and as we come to the table in the coming week. For his name's sake. Amen. Let us pray. O God Almighty, perfectly holy, Jesus Christ, in the image of God the Father, we come before you, and Holy Spirit, and we confess, Lord, that we are lepers. We are sinful, Lord. There's a monster of sin that dwells within us. And the very doctrine of the image of God teaches us that we took what was so perfect and we corrupted it utterly. And now, Lord, we rejoice in the sound of the gospel where we have heard from the mouth of our Savior that you are willing to cleanse us from our leprosy. Oh God, give us a fresh sight of our sin and guilt before you this week. Not that we might wallow in it. Not that we might end in that. But that it might drive us out of ourselves to the feet of Jesus, the willing Savior, that we might have his cleansing upon us. Oh God, remember us young and old, all who are gathered with us this evening. Lord, will you work in each heart? And will you make us ready to receive those blessed signs and seals of your love for us in the coming week? Give us a good week together, Lord. Will you bless us in our employment, our work, and all that we do? We pray that there may be those times and places where our hearts are full of the love of God and where we also may be given times of worship. Where our hearts too, Lord, overflow with joy and gladness 
in God our Savior. Make us ready, O Lord, for the sacrament in the coming week. And make us ready ultimately, O Lord, to see you coming upon the clouds of heaven with great glory and majesty, and that we would say, Come, Lord Jesus, yea, come quickly. Lord, please hear our prayer then, and bless and remember us in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.